You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Peter Bergen, who's a journalist, documentary producer, vice president for global studies and fellows at New America, CNN national security analyst, professor of practice at Arizona State University, where he co-directs the Center on the Future of War, and the author or editor of seven books, three of which were New York Times bestsellers, and four of which were named among the best nonfiction books of the year by the Washington Post. He is New America's director of the International Security and Future War Programs. He writes a weekly column for CNN.com and is a member of the Aspen Homeland Security Group and a fellow at Fordham University's Center on National Security. He's also on the editorial board of Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, a leading scholarly journal in the field. He's testified on Capitol Hill 17 times about national security issues. He has hosted, produced, and executive produced multiple documentaries for HBO, CNN, National Geographic, and Discovery. He produced CNN Films' Legion of Brothers, which premiered at Sundance in January 2017 and was released theatrically. It was nominated for an Emmy in 2018. He produced the first television interview with Osama bin Laden in 1997. The interview, which aired on CNN, marked the first time that bin Laden declared war against the United States to a Western audience. We'll also be joined today in our conversation by Chris Costa, who, as you know, is the executive director of the International Spy Museum. Prior to coming to the museum, he served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Counterterrorism on the National Security Council. At the NSC, he was responsible for coordinating counterterrorism policy and strategy, as well as U.S. hostage recovery activities. Before the NSC, he was with multiple special operations groups, uh, including places like the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, and a Senior Adjunct Instructor with Norwich University's Bachelor's of Science and Strategic Studies and Defense Analysis Program. In May of 2013, he was inducted into the U.S. SOCOM's Commando Hall of Honor for extraordinary and enduring service to Special Operations Forces. We could take another 20 minutes to talk about both of these men's biographies, but we'll jump right in. So let me say welcome, Peter, Chris. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you. Thank you. So in October of this year, um, the National Strategy for Counterterrorism was released by the White House. And this was billed as the first quote, robust and fully articulated strategy on counterterrorism since 2011, so almost nine years or eight years. So let me start with you, Chris, because you were involved in some of the writing of this, some of the planning of this, and certainly involved in some of the highest levels of counterterrorism policy. Why did it take so long to put out a new strategy on counterterrorism? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. So uh, to provide a little context, uh, I came on board and I knew that our team would have to put together a new strategy. So we, that was one of my key objectives, to frame the debate, frame the discussion, and start working on the strategy. But you're absolutely right. You get to the heart of the problem. There needed to be an updated strategy. Uh, time, too much time had elapsed. We didn't account for the Arab Spring. The landscape had changed significantly. Why? The, with the new administration, why we didn't have it done early on was simply because we had some what I call day one, week one problems. And it's it's worth just providing some additional context and share what those were on day one. The problems we were dealing with were significant. Uh, there was a threat to commercial aviation that was pervasive. We had to make a decision on a raid to put pressure on Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, an intelligence raid. And uh, thirdly, we had uh, to ramp up broadly our Accelerate ISIS campaign. We had to ramp that up significantly. Well, ISIS didn't exist in 2011. That's exactly when, right. Know, and that's, now you're getting to the, yeah. the key point. The threat had changed. And the 2011 strategy really only talked about Al-Qaeda, and I know we'll get into it, but this is much more agile and expansive, this current strategy. We talk about a full range of other organizations. So uh, that didn't even exist in 2011, to include ISIS. So those were the principal reasons why we knew we had to move out on the strategy. Well, let me, let me ask, I mean, you talked a little bit about having some tactical issues to deal with in the very beginning, and not think about grand strategy because right. of day-to-day -day issues. But this was something that had been put together for the most part as early as 2017. There were certainly drafts. I mean, one of them was actually leaked to the press right. in the middle of 2017, uh, kind of before hitting the National Security Council, you know, and, and running into some roadblocks, whether they be political or personality roadblocks. Certainly, I can read this and I see fingerprints of McMaster and Tom Bossert, but I see a lot more fingerprints of John Bolton. And not to be specific about that and kind of make it political, because I'm not trying to, it's more personality-based. Right. The idea of how different is this than what you were working on when you were there? You don't have to get, we'll, we'll talk about specifics yeah. in a second, but big picture-wise, how different is it? I think it's just a significant improvement. In other words, what we drafted and framed had it been published, it would have been inadequate in my mind. And that's a frank admission on my part. So the policy debate that played out after I left, the debate, the interagency coordination, produced a better product for the nation. I really believe that. So it continued in the right direction, but it's far more substantive than what we would have had had it been done while I was there. So as a layperson, and Peter can certainly ref talked about this, as a layperson, I read this. You can see, find this online. I suggest everyone go out and, and take a look at this. We're going to break it down as we go through, but it's, it needs to be read by everyone who's interested in this. The executive summary, so right at the beginning of the top, um, it says, today's terrorist landscape is more fluid and complex than ever. For this reason, counterterrorism remains a top priority for this administration. Now, not too long ago, there was a national defense strategy released by the White House in which terrorism seemed to be secondary or tertiary to the big picture, where there seemed to be a lot of kind of f focusing back on great power struggles, Russia, China, on things like that. And terrorism didn't seem to be necessarily as prominent as it had been in the past. 
what's right? This kind of seems to be conflicting messages coming out of the White House. Well, and also there was the national security strategy, which also you know really emphasizes great power competition with China and Russia. And I mean, you know, I mean these are not either or. The mm-hmm. U.S. government is you know um, capable of doing more than one thing at once. Uh, I mean, it does affect, I guess, uh, spending. Uh, if you if you if you really say that the era of great power competition is back, which is what the national security strategy said, uh, that does have impact on the way you spend money. And the fact, one fact, one of the facts that it, you know that we have to acknowledge, and, and it's a good fact, is that since 9/11, foreign terrorist organizations haven't successfully attacked the United States. Uh, there's been a bit of luck involved, but there's also been a huge amount of you know defensive measures are very good, offensive measures are pretty good, public knowledge is a force multiplier. So, you know, the fact is, I think it would be hard to say this politically, but we have managed and contained this problem because of people like Chris Costa and, and, and others. Uh, you can't you can't say it politically because if there's an attack that's you know it, it just but the fact this is the truth of the matter we we, we haven't eliminated it because terrorism's been around since you know the dawn of time. I'll ask about that <laughs> a little bit later. Yeah, uh, but but we have we. I mean, the fact is, the last time that we were attacked here in the United States, an attempted attack by a foreign terrorist organization was on May 1st, 2010. Now, that's almost a decade ago. That was Faisal Shahzad, trained by the Pakistani Taliban, tried to blow up a bomb in Times Square. It didn't work, luckily. And there's a whole series of reasons why that's true. But the point is, is that we've done a very good job of managing this. Um, and so, you know, it, which doesn't mean you take the foot off the gas and we saw the pullout from Iraq in 2011 kind of created a vacuum and we have to like maintain what we have but we've done a pretty good job there's there's terminology in this that popped in that wasn't in the leaked version coming from last year and that's and i'll read this sentence that it comes from our principal terrorist enemies are radical islamist terrorist groups and that's the phrase i'm talking about that seek to conduct attacks globally violate our borders and radicalize and recruit potential extremists within the united states and abroad there's a lot of debate about using that kind of language, using that kind of that radical Islamist terrorist groups. And there's debate from multiple perspectives. One is, do we make the rest of the Muslim community think that we're targeting all of Muslims? Or do we, if we focus so specifically on Islamist groups, are we overlooking far right or you know nationalist groups or other things like that? Let me ask you, Chris, that wasn't in the version that you guys did. right? Where do you stand on adding this kind of verbiage to the strategy? Well, uh, the leaked version had a term of art that uh, I was comfortable with, and that was global jihadists. Uh, That said, I am actually more comfortable with the current term of art, and that is radical Islamist terrorism, uh, because it gets to a couple things. It gets to, one, by using the term terrorism itself, that gets to political violence and all that's associated with that and all that's negative, appropriately so. Islamist versus Islam is a distinction some people don't fully appreciate, but the bottom line is ISIS is a quintessential Islamist terrorist organization because they want to change politically uh, the the region and they have political aspirations. So I actually thought that coupled with the word radical was more precise than even what we had. And and I will offer the view that jihadist in some circles, even though there's the inner strength meeting and scholars could share a whole lot more than I could on that, but it also was self-identified by some of the terrorists themselves. As such, they like that term, right. and uh, that's how they self-identify. There's a romantic notion to it. This takes that away. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a certain... Uh, I, I I think radical Islam, Islamist terrorist is a perfectly fine description of the problem. I think jihadist terrorist, which is what was in the national security strategy, is also a perfectly fine description. Um, I mean, it gets you away from using the word Islamic. You know, some listeners may think this is like getting too in the weeds, but mm-hmm. the point is, is that you don't want to make the description about the religion. Right. Uh, an Islamist is basically somebody who's using Islam for political purposes or has a political vision right. rather than a necessary religious vision. So I, I think I think it's fine. Uh, the, this is a perfectly reasonable way of describing the issue. The State Department lists multiple countries as state sponsors of terrorism, and they're certainly not all in the Middle East. There's ones all around the world. I mean, there's a debate right now about should Cuba stay on it or go back on it, North Korea, others. But the, the counterterrorism strategy calls out one in particular, uh, Iran. Um, it says, we continue to face threats from Iran, the most prominent state sponsor of terrorism through its global network of operatives and ongoing support to array of terrorist groups. This is obviously a trend that this administration is moving in. It is kind of re-engaging Iran as an adversary, whereas the Obama administration had the, the Iran nuclear deal and tried to at least look at the Iranian leadership, certainly not Khamenei, but the, the civilian leadership as a potential honest broker. We've gone a different direction than that, certainly this indicating that in the nuclear deal. Is it productive or counterproductive to call out a specific country like Iran that has, like them or hate them, they have incredible weight in that region of the world. They're, they're, they're an important broker. Does, does it make sense to do this? I know that sounds like a weighted question. It's not. I actually don't know the answer to this. Well, I mean... You know, the, the Obama administration had a certain theory of the case about Iran, which is a nuclear deal would, um, you know, kind of create a, uh, the conditions for perhaps a, a better Iranian leadership that would be, and I, I don't, I think that was probably turned out to be a little bit of wishful thinking. Um, but let's, let's not go down, there's a big rabbit hole we could go down on the nuclear deal. But I mean, the question is, uh, Iranian support for terrorism, um, you know, certainly, uh, you can make the case that um, you know they try to kill the Saudi ambassador not far from where we're sitting in this studio in Washington, um, and there certainly have been you know recent arrests in Europe of uh, Iranian sort of officials who were going to engage in terrorism. That said, I you know I don't as a I I can't the last time an American citizen was killed by an Iranian as, in, in a terrorist attack is you know we're talking about you know we're looking into the eighties. Now, certainly, Iranian, you know, know-how and and uh, bombs were you know killed a lot of American servicemen in Iraq. So, is that terrorism? That's not terrorism in the kind of terrorism is usually directed at civilians. So the point is, you know, Iran has operated against American interests in the region. Yes, and 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 has been pretty successful in. Um, you know, whether it's in Syria or Lebanon or, or Yemen in terms of expanding its influence and that's something that this administration is opposed to and um, that's so I mean it's not surprising that this language is in here yeah and I, I have no concerns that we're calling out Iran just because it dovetails nicely with the lucid assessment of, of 
the complex nature of the threat in the region. Uh, it's a metaphor, and I've used the metaphor before. When you stand in Golan and you you know you look down and you see Syria, we know that Hezbollah are playing a spoiling role there. They're backed by Iran. There are Shiite militias that also act as proxies. There's Iran is sponsoring activities in Yemen. So they're clearly, they're well beyond some of the clandestine support happening. There are states that aren't named, but you can figure out who those mm -hmm. states are uh, by the clandestine nature of their financial support to terrorist organizations. But Iran is so outsized in this space, and Syria is so fresh in our minds, in that landscape is so disrupted that we couldn't refrain in my view of calling out Iran plus they have a worldwide attack capability they just haven't turned that on and we don't know when that is what is the threshold right. for Iranians acting so I was gonna save this question for the end but I, I'm gonna put it into the middle here so that the, the executive summary of this report has a very poetic ending I think it's very well written uh, but I want to ask you about the very end of it because um, it's almost the kind of the bottom line of the whole conversation, and then we'll break it down a little bit. It says, building on the national security strategy and the administration's progress to date, the national strategy for counterterrorism outlines how the United States will combat terrorism at home and abroad and keep America safe. Acting in accordance with the strategy, we would defeat our enemies, just as we defeated the purveyors of oppression, fascism, and totalitarianism in previous wars. We will always remember September 11, 2001, and the sacrifices made by so many brave patriots in defense of our country against the evil scourge of terrorism. With that same spirit of service and self-sacrifice, we will safeguard the homeland, protect our way of life, and eliminate our enemy's ability to threaten our country. We are a nation at war, and it is a war that the United States will win. That's beautiful. But how the hell do you win a war against terrorism? This is something that's been around since the beginning of time. This yeah. is something, how do you beat an ideology? How do you beat a tactic? This is something I, I this is not just this administration, right? This goes back, very, you know, this is the idea of a war on terror and how that phrase means nothing if you kind of break it down and think about it. How do you win this kind of a war? ISIS has 1% of the territory today that it had at the height of its power. How is that not winning? If we knock 99% of ISIS territory down and we can't say mission accomplished, then how can we possibly know? What is the metric for winning this war? Well, I'll try to... Go, oh, ahead. go ahead, Peter. Go ahead. No. So I would just offer this. So what I hear in, uh, in the executive summary and your summation of that is we've done a lot of learning for the last 16, 17 years. And that learning is really wrapped into this document. In my view, and again, I'm being objective, I've gone back, I, I briefed the 2011 uh, in various settings in, to include academia, and uh, I've studied our first uh, strategy. I think this is the best strategy because we've learned so much. It takes a lot of learning. The recognition that this is an unending war is, uh, is a, a pretty critical admission that it's going to continue at some level, but the intensity is going to abate over time. And of course, our, the end states are laid out in the strategy, and frankly, it's to reduce and prevent attacks here in the United States and against our interests abroad and, and partners. But to push back a little bit, it's not to reduce, it's to prevent. Like the end game of the strategy is to stop them from happening altogether. Mm -hmm. And That's fair. is that the metric of success? Because that seems like you're setting yourself up for failure because you can't prevent everything. I mean, it goes back to what the IRA said to Margaret Thatcher, yeah. you know, they only have to be lucky once. 
Yeah, I mean, look, terrorism um, as a tactic has been used, uh, yeah, fre frequently. Uh, I, I, I think managing, 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 containing the problem. So it's really not. A, I mean, the reason we're having this discussion at all is because of 9/11. If you do the thought experiment where 9/11 didn't happen, uh, terrorism was a second order. It was a national security problem that was regarded as sort of second order. What I think a success success would look like moving the problem back into that box where you you recognize that you can't stop everything because right. there are people sitting in their rooms radicalizing because of what they read on the internet, whether that's extreme right-wing propaganda, jihadi propaganda, black nationalist propaganda, whatever, the, you know, that that is not going to... Political violence has been around the United States. The 1970s was, you know, like... the there was a uh, hundred hijackings in the 1970s there were 85 bombings by Puerto Rican nationalists there was the weather underground there were the Black Panthers I mean so political violence is 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 just a feature that is you know we can manage and contain try and reduce we're not going to eliminate because that's just but as a political matter you can't say that I think what you, <laughs> you're right, yeah, you, right. because managing contain management and containment is not like it sort of suggests that you're prepared to sort of, you know, not not go the fi the final mile. But that, I mean, that that's kind of that's the de facto strategy. Yeah. It's it, it is the disease metaphor, right? You're yeah. not going to eliminate it, yeah. but you can you can control it, and you can apply different instruments and tools to you know for longevity. And in this case, it's to prevent a catastrophic uh, terrorism attack. But we don't want any attacks. And yeah, in, in but I, I think. I think because of the work of, of Chris Costa and, and, and others, I mean, we have prevented that catastrophic attack. I mean, the, yes, the Orlando attack was 49 people, and that's a big deal. But, um, you know, th those, those kinds of lone wolf, lone actor attacks, they, they are very hard to prevent. I mean, there right. is no, and often sometimes these people aren't known to, to law enforcement, uh, and even some, sometimes they are, but, you know, you can't, the FBI can't keep a case open just for years and years just on suspicion I mean so you know it, it this is not an easy this is not an easy problem to eliminate it, it's not possible right so th th then my next question would be you know as a military and diplomatic historian I look back through history and the idea is you don't start a war that you don't know kind of how you can declare victory right how your exit strategy <laughs> and well but yeah. it, it, but the, the 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 strategy actually talks about several times independent assessments Right. To ensure that we're making, they use this, this phrase, measurable progress. Right. What are the metrics? What are, what is measurable progress? Is it less people dying, less attacks, no major catastrophic attacks? Is it, you know, there's less countries to do this from? I, I don't. My when I read this, it it, it seems like it's not getting into the weeds enough. That the idea is, it's great words. But where is the metric for actually pulling this stuff off yeah. and being able to measure if we're doing our job? So that's a there's a mechanical answer to this, which is worth talking about for a second. This is just the start of the work. We framed it early on. I take no credit for this document, um, but I will say we contribute to framing the debate, framing the discussion. Then the interagency coordination happened. The how we're going to execute 
is going to come with the implementation planning that will likely be classified, that will get into excruciating details for how departments and agencies work, the, the tactics of using this framework to go after the threat as it's enumerated here, and with real, no kidding, intelligence that's highly classified. So the work begins, but with that, it, the admission right up front, or the that necessitates a, uh, an accounting, metrics, and independent assessments is laudable. And that will happen. Uh, so uh, it's a little unfair uh, for you, really, Vince. You're asking the question, <laughs> and I'm telling you that the, uh, the details will be in you know, classified annexes likely. No, I, and, and I, I look, the reason I want to talk to both of you is counterterrorism is not my forte, but as a layperson, an educated layperson, I've looked at the last 15 years and seen that for a couple of years it was the most deadly job in the world is to be the number two guy in Al-Qaeda because yep. they were dying right. once a week. And then we kill bin Laden, and then we kill Anwar al-Awlaki, yep. and then we've got Baghdadi on the run, and ISIS is almost completely defeated. That seems like those should be measurable success points. Like, yay, we won. Nope, we didn't. Yay, we won. Nope, we didn't. Yeah, And it's kind of this constant moving the bar and moving the goal line. Maybe there is no goal line. Well, I mean, I think part of it, like, this is a philosophical observation, but a part of it is, a, is the language that we deal with. And, I, and Chris and I were talking about the Barbary pirates uh, over lunch before we came here. And, you know, the, what, what were the Barbary pirates? I mean, were they a criminal organization that, uh, or were they kind of a quasi-governmental entity? I mean, the, the prop Al Qaeda, ISIS, these these groups don't fall conveniently into like we we don't have the language to describe the conflict we're in because it doesn't clearly there is a warlike aspect to this but you know we're talking about you're talking about Baghdadi and Bin Laden you know it's not like they can command a huge divisions that could be right. like put in wiped out a bit you know it's just it's just a different kind of kind of conflict so I, it is a persistent threat I think the, the this I think the document may use the the it is going to persist. It's not going away. I made the mistake of believing the death of Bin Laden, the Arab Spring game over. This is not you know this problem is sort of going to be you know diminished significantly, and then ISIS popped up. And I mean, if you look at the underlying conditions in the Middle East, the sectarianism, the collapse of Arab governance, collapse of Arab economies, the massive. You know, demographic explosion in that part of the world. That you know, that's and the you know unprecedented wave of Muslim immigration to Europe and the antibodies that creates and and how that produces alienation in the Muslim community in Europe. All those things are going to continue, and and they're going to. There's a son of ISIS or a grandson of ISIS. It may not take over property, you know, territory the size of the United Kingdom and population the size of Switzerland as ISIS did at its height. But there'll be something. I mean, and this is just a persistent problem, and right. it's not. It isn't going away, and and and, and uh, you know, but but we can do things to kind of just make sure that. I'm going back to Chris's disease ma metaphor that this is, you know, this is, this is not sort of a malignant sort of tumor that takes over, but is kind of kept in a, in a box to the extent you can put it in a box, uh, and. You know, part of the problem is you've got you know a lot of states around the world that you know, don't really control their territory, and these groups are not strong. They they prey on hosts that are weak, and you know, trying to solve the problem of governance in some of these countries is not that's like can take a long time. Right. Well, you, you, to use the disease metaphor even more, I mean, we, we seem to be going after symptoms and treating symptoms. There is, as an idealist, I liked the fact that there is a phrase in here that popped back in that hasn't been used for a while. The idea of combating violence extremism right. or ideologies, you know, going to the kind of the source of trying to fix and maybe it doesn't mean nation building, but maybe it means going after 
some of the the recruiting That's capabilities. Right. It's stopping people from becoming terrorists in the first place. And a, a second part of that question uh, is the idea of using online resources to do this, right. going kind of essentially information operations and counter propaganda. Yeah. That seems to be one of the most effective ways, certainly in this networked world, to prevent people from becoming terrorists in the first place. Yeah, so, I mean, you're getting to the favorite part of the strategy from my standpoint. It's it's very elegant, and it's it's new in that um, we're talking about counter-terrorist radicalization and recruitment. We now have a prevention architecture that we really didn't have uh, previously. It Call it CV, call it whatever you want, but we have now a, uh, a structure, at least a framework, to counter extremism from jihadists to right-wing extremists that are going to use violence and we want to get them off the internet and there's a component of this for countering ideology as well as strategic communications and to to uh, essentially um, uh, communicate that uh, that victory is impossible um, get people off the internet and also implied in this and implicit in this is using our technological advantages and also sharing those advantages with partners. So that's very important. So we covered a lot of ground in that portion of the strategy. Yeah, I mean, preventing radicalization is, I think, probably a fool's errand because, um, you know, there are lots of radicals in the world, very, people, very few of them are violent. And, and in fact, of course, from the, you can have, being a radical is not a crime in the United States. Right. So you, you want to, re recruitment is I think the, the kind of key thing. So you want to make sure that people don't join these groups right. or self-recruit to them in some sort of way. And how do you do that? I think the most, probably the most effective approach, uh, we know from politics in this country that negative advertising works because uh, people keep pouring money into negative ads. So, <laughs> so what is the analog for this? In this case, I think it's defectors who, you know, they've been in these groups. They know that they're not creating some utopia here on earth. It's a very powerful voice. And this is an example of like, you know, getting defectors to tell their stories. I think it's a very useful approach because you're just trying to get people not to join these groups. And, 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 uh, and another approach is, you know, something that State Department does, which is the, the GEC. What does that stand for? Chris? The, the Global, Global, Engage, Global Engagement, Engagement Center. Center. You know, they, they covertly often and sometimes overtly give small amounts of money to local groups who are in the local language, you know, producing, you know, countering these groups mm -hmm. because the U.S. government doesn't have the knowledge, the expertise or the credibility to kind of, let's say in Yemen, produce some kind of message that's going to be against right. al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. But a local group does and you know, give them a small amount of money. I mean, that's a fairly effective approach. And at least it can do no harm. So we have got smarter, I think, uh, definitely with, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and the social media companies are doing a better job. I mean, they've got a big problem here, which, but you know, YouTube, for instance, you know, f has uh, 400 hours of, of material uploaded every minute. I mean, it's just the, the volume is just totally off the chart. So how do you, and of course, YouTube, is, you know, that's where ISIS has posted a lot of its propaganda. So, but you know, there's been some advances. All these social media companies have hired a lot more people to try and bring down this content. There's also a kind of photo DNA technology that is useful about certain images. You know, if they pop up, you can kind of take them down because you already know that they're uh, in some way uh, violating your terms of use. So, uh, you know, 
why but going, going back to the strategy for a minute I, I thought the new the really new thing that is in there is is the focus on neo-nazi groups right uh, and you know that's interesting for the Trump administration to have really called out these groups and and, and, and made that part of the strategy so uh, you know all credit to them uh, and uh, to you Chris we'll be right back after this And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Well, and, and again, Peter just said it, but it's worth emphasizing again that private sector cooperation in that sphere is crucial, and there's a recognition of that, and it was happening. And then the other thing I just uh, throw out there is the, the term off-ramps. That implies programs, programs to give people an outlet. Uh, to give would-be, uh, you know, radicals or terrorists ways to uh, to contribute positively to the community. Well, it's interesting. You talked about, you know, the GEC and in, in, in letting these host nations kind of, because they understand their population better than anybody else does. Is there a lot of learning that we're doing from other places? As you talk about the idea, like, a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, when they arrest a terrorist or potential terrorist, they look for de-radicalization. They kind of have that methodology of trying to do that. Whereas in the West, it's usually more incarceration, right? Throw them behind bars, lock them down. There, there's not as much. It's a, I guess it's basically a cultural shift. Is there a kind of an active way of learning from the way other countries have been dealing with terrorism? I mean, even like, look, Iran might be a state sponsor of terrorism, but they get hit all the time because of the Sunni Shiite conflicts so are there are we learning from the way other countries have been dealing with this so i'll just um, uh, emphasize that the state department in particular as well as national counterterrorism center staffs that work these issues specifically radicalization counter-radicalization they're engaged with their counterparts quite frequently and for my part with our team we engaged and looked for best practices and uh and we saw where that there were there were problems that didn't apply. For example, this laudably this document also talks about uh, radicalization in a prison. We don't have a huge problem with that in the United States, but the recognition that that doesn't mean we might not have a problem uh, is very positive. But we don't have the kind of problems in scale that Europe has with their diaspora communities. So. Uh, it, when we talk to foreign partners, oftentimes I make the point that we don't have the same scope of the problem you have. And there was a recognition of that, and yet we still learn from them. Peter? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Chris is absolutely right. So, you know, Saudi Arabia has a pretty big de-radicalization program, but, you know, Saudi Arabia is also, you know, the kind of, uh, I mean, their knowledge about Islam and using Islam and, you know, as a, as a kind of counter-argument, uh, 
you know, we, we're not going to have that in the United States. And it's just very, and it's also the scale of the problem, as Chris mentioned, is like here it's much smaller. So, yes, you can kind of observe these things, but I don't think there's much learning to be done. When you're in Islamic countries, they're going to have a different approach than here uh, in the United States. Now, the, the Danes, I think, and the, are certainly you know, trying to bring some of these ISIS families that are coming back and trying to sort of reintegrate them in society, and maybe there's something to be learned there. And so in the United States, in Minneapolis, there was a judge who, instead of putting somebody in jail, put them in a halfway house, and sort of it didn't, the experiment didn't really work out, is my understanding. But the point is that there are, you know, certain judges can sort of say, well, look, if somebody's very young, uh, you know, maybe putting them in prison for 10 years doesn't make sense. Maybe come up with a... But I think, in general, the United States isn't going to experiment that much with that because there's the, 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 the risks are deemed higher than the... You're taking a risk. And I think the, the usual kind of thing is we're, we're just going to... We're, we're not going to take a risk here, um, which, is, uh, which is unfortunate because I think for families, there's a very difficult choice... Uh, this choice is not happening as often now, but because ISIS is less attractive. But when ISIS was at its height, let's say if you saw your son was radicalizing and thinking you'd join ISIS, do you call the FBI and then maybe your son may end up in prison for 10 years? Or do you let him continue and he goes to Syria, he gets killed? And it's a difficult choice for a family member to make. And family members are often the people who know that radicalization is taking place or even plans. So um, there is certainly an argument, you know, Chris mentioned the word off-ramps, there's certainly an argument to be thinking about off-ramps and, and kind of how to... Yeah, and one off-ramp is getting a visit from the FBI. Uh, but sometimes that, that's often, you know, for most people, if you the FBI came and said, you know, why, we know what you're, you're, you're watching and thinking, then most people would knock it off. But there was a woman called Shannon Connolly, who was a 19-year-old from Denver, Colorado, the FBI said, look, came to her four times and said, if you want to do something for Syria, you know, join a charitable organization or do, you know, don't join ISIS. And she still tried to get on a plane to go to Syria and is, and is now was, was put in jail. So even if you have a, a situation where you do have off-ramps, some people are going to ignore them. Well, Anwar Alaki very famously blamed harassment from right. the FBI. As, I mean, that might have been an excuse, but he certainly that's what drove him. Yeah, well, that's a whole other story. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of really uniqueness involved in that. But I mean, you know, his yeah. his consorting with prostitutes on right. a regular basis, and I think he was fright he was he was frightened the FBI would kind of out him. So let me. There's something that jumped out at me. There's a couple things I want to hit up on them. Idea of how we deal with terrorists as far as incarceration or other things. One thing that was called out in this report was. Um, what they call the effective use of the law of armed conflict detention as a counterterrorism tool. For in, in normal people terms, that's Guantanamo Bay. That's special sites where there is essentially outside of American laws and then being treated as an enemy combatant versus someone that necessarily has the same kind of rights for lawyers and other things like that, too. That was very controversial in 2001 and 2002. I'm not sure we've answered that question quite yet. Is that just something that keeps kick, getting kicked down the road? Because if you remember out there, you know, that was ISIS propaganda, was dressing people up in orange jumpsuits before they beheaded them, kind of as this image of Guantanamo as this rallying cry. Is that something we still should be doing, or is there an end in sight to that? Well, I just say that the w the way I address that is is suggesting that it has been a significantly difficult problem, but there isn't a way an outcry from the world right now that 
Gitmo is open and that people are likely going to die of old age there uh, for those that are incarcerated, incorrigible, most of them. Um, the real issue is the fact that in the aftermath of ISIS, down to the 1% that you mentioned, Vince, the, uh, the issue is countries didn't want to take their detainees back. And from a diplomatic standpoint, we consistently message, take your, take your detainees back. Countries don't want to take them. It's not exclusively a U.S. problem. It's an international problem, and it's a tough problem. Fortunately, the Syrian Democratic Forces have actually done a very good job of detaining ISIS members belonging to other countries and holding them, and in some cases have been put on trial in places like Iraq, and there have been several executions there. So we have to be mindful of countries taking them back and doing things that aren't consistent with our values and our laws, uh, perhaps. But the bottom line is it's a tough problem. Gitmo remains open. It remained open under President Obama. Uh, I think uh, there wasn't a lot of words on Gitmo. I think it was mentioned twice in the strategy. It's just the idea and a recognition that we can keep it open if we have to. Um, but we also are hamstrung by not being able to put these people in the United States. No one wants them here incarcerated in the United States. Sure. I mean, let me ask you, Peter, kind of this may be a big picture question. I'm not asking this with an answer in mind. Have we been continuing to put the cart before the horse in this case? Do we need to kind of pull back and do some very basic things? We don't have a universally accepted definition of terrorism that everyone uses. We don't necessarily yeah. understand if the people that we are capturing on the battlefield have Geneva Convention rights or if they can be tried in a U.S. jail. Even if we had caught Anwar al-Awlaki instead of just droning him, would he have been somebody that had the rights under the Constitution because he was an American citizen born in the United States? I don't think we've answered some of these very basic questions that to me seem to be very important before we start talking about a strategy of defeating terrorism, maybe we should be able to define it first. Well, I, I look, we've wrapped ourselves in a giant pretzel with Guantanamo, uh, and and the pretzel is not going to be unwound. Um, and part of it is gets back to this question about what is the kind of conflict we're fighting. I mean, if we were fighting a state-on-state -state conflict, these questions wouldn't. It would be very clear. Right. Um, but we're not, and I think that these questions are pretty complex. And I mean, I thought in the counterterrorism strategy, as Chris said, it's, Guantanamo is mentioned once or twice in a, in a long document. But to, what to me is fascinating is the Trump administration hasn't put anybody in Guantanamo. And if you remember Saipov, who was the guy who killed eight people in Manhattan with the right. truck, um, it, it, and this is after the geographical defeat of ISIS, and it was about a year ago, right? Uh, it was on Halloween about a right. year ago. It so was. he he. President Trump was quick to, t to tweet, uh, you know, we should put him in Guantanamo. And then the following morning, and this is a very unusual, he, he sort of likes, some, obviously somebody said to him, look, if you put this guy in Guantanamo, you know, he'll be, you know, he may never, he may never be put on trial because the, the whole process has collapsed mm -hmm. because it's too, it's too unwieldy. Um, you know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the operational commander of 9-11, was captured 15 years ago in Pakistan. He's still not on trial. I mean, he may never go on trial as far as I can tell. So it, the place is, uh, you know, well, it's interesting that the Trump administration hasn't put anybody in. I, I think that, in a sense, it's not that different from the Obama administration, which is they couldn't close it. And also, by the way, you close the geographical entity. You still, the, it's really a set of legal problems. Not a, it's not the location. Right. <laughs> and and then you know the Trump administration isn't putting anybody else in either, uh, because I think they understand it's this this thing is just not working. 
Right. Um, and, and it does get to your point. I don't think we're going to resolve these questions that easily because I don't think that that easily resolved. Wasn't this an inherent problem with terrorism is that kind of at face it's a, it's a, it's somewhat of a crime enforcement, or a, like a, it's essentially it's a crime, right? And we've militarized it after nine eleven, and maybe it was partially militarized before, and it's certainly become an intelligence question too. But that muddles the criminal justice aspects of it, right? If you arrest somebody who plans on setting off a bomb in Times Square, based on SIGINT, right? You have the NSA has intercepted a communication. Very hard to try that person for that. Or if you arrest somebody, American citizen overseas, fighting for ISIS. Where is the jurisdiction of that because it was a CIA paramilitary team that grabbed the guy? Or they've been in a black site, right? There's a big reason that we can't try Abu Zubaydah or KSM is because yeah. there's no way to put them in a civilian court in the United States because the vast majority of information against them was gathered through means that we can't talk about. And you could argue a civilian court would look at the apprehension of these people as being completely illegal or the waterboarding or anything yeah. like that. That seems to be an inherent problem in actually solving some of these big picture, picture yeah. issues. But we have, you know, stopped. I mean, the things that you've mentioned have stopped. Right. So, I mean, the black sites don't exist. Right. The, uh, I mean, we have learned from our mistakes, uh, and uh, so, but and some, of the, but you're talking about mistakes that, you know, are, I think they're impossible to totally unwind. I think. Right. I mean, yeah. there's a fruit of the poison tree. I think is the legal doctrine. Right. But I actually a question for Chris because it's a really interesting case that Chris knows, which is, you know, the two of the so-called Beatles who, you know, beheaded Jim Foley or alleged to and, and other Americans are sitting in Kurdish prison and the Brits won't take them because they've taken away their passports and, you know, they, and there was some concern they might be executed if they went to the United States. The British have dropped right. that objection. But they, these guys are in a sort of legal limbo, right? Yeah. There's a, I mean, that happened after I left, of course, yeah. so I'm just an observer of the news. And the bottom line is it re- reinforces just the uh, kind of the gray zone dynamics right. that exist uh, from a legal standpoint. There, the, there are no easy solutions to the legal problems, but it reinforces two points that are worth making. One is there's been excellent continuity, and Peter and I talk about this all the time. Uh, I don't want to be too self-congratulatory, but there's been a continuity between administrations on solid counterterrorism work. It's professional. It's consistent. It's not markedly different. It's consistent. And yet the problems that you just addressed also there's a continuity right. of problems that haven't been resolved either. And I've, I've lived those, and I looked for solutions, but we're just it's tough to solve. One, one last thing I want to point out, and then we can talk about some statistics, um, mainly focused on domestic terrorism. Um, there's a line in here that kind of flips one of the kind of the Trumpisms of America first, and it says, the strategy recognizes, however, that America first does not mean America alone. And there's an interesting call out here to expanding intelligence sharing with partners. And there's also another section that talks about dealing with what they actually use the word novel, new partners, yeah. people we haven't necessarily dealt with in the past. This seems like a somewhat radical departure of expanding intelligence sharing. And certainly you're talking about some of the most sensitive intelligence when you're talking about probably talking about SIGINT, talking about human sources and methods with people that we haven't necessarily dealt with before. And I think that involves the fact that if you look at some of the statistics from the last couple of years, it's not just a Middle Eastern problem anymore, and it's not just a North Africa problem anymore. Sub-Saharan Africa and Europe and other places that we don't necessarily identify with being hotbeds of Islamic fundamentalism are now ground zero for a lot of these operations. 
Is this a, this is my long wind up to this question, mm -hmm. Chris and Peter. Do you see this information sharing and ability to, or desire to work with countries we hadn't worked with before as being a departure from the policies of the past? Well, I'll answer it this way. That's a great question. And I will tell you that, you know, intelligence sharing part and parcel has always been a important important part of counterterrorism strategy but we are working with non-traditional partners so i very much like that language because we already talked about them the syrian democratic forces mm -hmm. that's not a state but you're engaged against isis so there are certain bureaucratic imperatives that have to be broken and the paradigm has to change and i did see that play out uh, during the my time in the administration. So I think just that simple language reinforces the importance of non-traditional partnerships that equate to non-traditional intelligence sharing partnerships as well. So that helps the bureaucracy digest its change. And, I, you know, again, picking up on what Chris said, I mean, there's a lot of continuity between the Obama administration and the uh, Trump administration in this document. I mean, yes, there was some changes, but... There's, there's more continuity than discontinuity, and, and one of those continuities is, you know, when Admiral McRaven was running Special Operations Command, I mean, there was more and more emphasis on uh, partnering with Special Operations in many, many countries around the world. And, yeah, there's, there's a very, and there's a good reason for that, which is, you know, that obviates the need to send in, you know, sort of large American... Uh, you know, I mean, look at the defeat of ISIS. It was achieved with, I mean, the number of Americans on the ground in Iraq and Syria, if you added them all up at any given moment, I mean, I'd be very surprised if they came to 8,000 or, I mean, Chris would know the real number, but it's probably classified. But, uh, <laughs> but it, wasn't a, it wasn't a large number. And it was because we were partnering with the Syrian Democratic uh, uh, Forces and, and also with the Iraqi Counterterrorism Service, which is the Iraqi equivalent of our special forces. And, and and that's just smart. I mean, there's no, but Trump and Obama are very similar on some levels. No, no big conventional wars. The American public doesn't want it. Using drones, using special operations forces, using cyber warfare, small American footprint. I mean, that's that does. And this, and this counterterrorism strategy is basically that's what it is. I mean, right. it, there, there isn't. Um, there's no call in here for. We're going to, you know, send a hundred thousand man army and a hundred thousand man and woman army to country Y, or that's how we should be thinking about this issue. That's that's some of the learning that Chris has talked about. And just to put a finer point on it, uh, simply put, if you want to know after October fourth what the strategy looks like as it plays out, just look at. 2017, how it played out over the first year of the administration. It'll look much the same, except for what will change is what we, um, Peter, talked about, the counter-radicalization piece gets at some other problems that we weren't necessarily focused on, right. uh, to include the right side of the, the violent uh, spectrum. Yeah, and I want to talk about that a little bit. There, there's another uh, report that came out in November of 2018 and this is called the Global Terrorism Index, and two, two organizations, the Institute for Economics and Peace in Australia, and then START, which is right here at the University of Maryland and College Park, which is the study of terrorism responses to terrorism, put out essentially a yearbook of statistics when it deals with global terrorism. And some of their key findings focusing on trends, I think is really interesting. And, and maybe um, we can pull some conclusions from this, um, because as much as people are still afraid of terrorism in the world, as much as people are still talking about terrorism maybe being their number one concern, there's a lot of very positive trends when it comes to certainly Islamist terrorism, 
uh, around the world, uh, deaths from terrorism decreased by 27% in 2017. Um, and deaths fell by 52%. And then in Europe, where a lot of people are seeing the sky is falling in Europe because of the immigration issue and everything else, Europe had a the largest of anything decrease in percentage, total deaths falling by 75%, and talking 90% plus in the countries, France, Germany, and Belgium, where the most fear of the outsider is. Um, what's interesting to me, and I want to ask both of you about this, is that 20% of terrorist attacks were unsuccessful in 2017, uh, which is a dramatic increase in the last couple of years. It was barely over 10%. Is that because we're seeing better counterterrorism operations? Is that because of better intelligence? Is that because they're, we've killed all the good terrorists and there's only the idiots left over? <laughs> Sorry, is that... I, I Look, those numbers, I think, are very affected by the collapse of the ISIS geographical yeah. caliphate. Because, I mean, when you have 130 people being killed in Paris in the course of, you know, 36 hours by nine, you know, trained ISIS, fully trained, directed, owned, uh, that's a lot of people. Uh, or similarly in Belgium, we had the attacks in Brussels and... So th those attacks have just stopped. And, you, you know, if you look at the uh, the lethality of individual terrorists, you know, typically they're not that lethal. I mean, yesterday you can have the Omar Mateen killing 49 people in Orlando. or uh, But, you know, he's he's kind of an outlier. You know, where you get the high lethality is a group of people who've been trained to kill uh, by a terrorist organization. That's when you get a Paris with 130 dead or a 9-11 with 3,000 people dead. So I think these, 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 these statistics are... They're great. I mean, they're, they show a decline, but the decline is directly related to the right. fact that Chris and his colleagues put a huge amount of pressure on ISIS, and they they can't train anybody. And you know, it's one thing to be radicalized on the internet. I mean, when Chris was in special forces, special operations, they didn't train him and his colleagues on the internet, right? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can be radicalized by the internet, but it's not necessarily going to turn you into effective. Like you know, the, the guys in the Paris attacks had all gone to Syria. They'd all been trained. I mean, they weren't, you know, the world's great. I mean, it's easy to kill civilians in a crowded th you know, theater, but they had actually had some training. Right. So we, I think with that gone, this explains these figures, the fact that you're just seeing these declines because I'm sure the, vi the violence in Iraq has gone down just markedly. I was there a year ago, and it just like the whole visually it looks different, and you're not hearing right. things going boom in the night. No. <laughs> well, Iraq was the actually uh, the, the key finding of this report was that the number one country in the world had decreased terrorism attack was Iraq. It's become dramatically safer. I mean, almost yeah. by exponential growth. Um, that Let me ask you, that we talked about symptoms versus the kind of the disease itself. Interesting statistic in here that over 99%, so essentially they're saying all of it, all over 99% of all deaths from terrorism have occurred in countries involved in violent conflict or with high levels of political terror. That seems to be there's a root cause there that maybe we can hone in on. I know you, you can't run around and nation build everywhere right. on earth. But is that a way that we can start to try to get at the disease versus the symptoms? Well, I think, uh, again, the strategy is not saying we're not going to be all things to all people everywhere. In fact, it's very clear there's an economy of activities in this, an economy of force. But there is an idea, uh, idea that those places uh, that have grievances, the United States will work with the nations to get at some of those problems. For example, there has to be a homegrown alternative when when Syrian democratic forces move through an area that they're clearing and they're almost done clearing, there has to be some kind of alternative to uh, governance. And so far, as I said, in Syria, I don't want to be too up 
beat, but it's been relatively positive what's come in its wake. Some rebuilding, some re- reintegration. So, I mean, there's, there's room to be positive, but uh, we are not going to solve grassroots problems across the globe. Right. But we, what we can do is work with the weaker partners out there, the, the partners that that have less resources to help give them more resources. And I think there's an acknowledgement in the strategy on that. And while global terrorism is decreasing, the opposite, far-right terrorism is increasing pretty dramatically, and this report talks about that idea, um, not only because of online platforms and the ability to converse that way, um, but there, the year 2017 had been the second deadliest year for North America with regards to far-right terrorism since 2002. And the incidents, there's a great chart on this report where I can show you Basically, incidents of far-right terrorism, 2002 there was one, 2003 there was two. Essentially from 2002 all the way through 2011, they were all in the single digits of incidents of far-right terrorism. Skip down to 2017, there were 59 individual incidents of far-right terrorism in North America alone. And that shows a, a market growth. I mean, you can see it basically just skyrockets up to that point. And that's not about deaths. I mean, there are certainly more deaths in certain other areas, but incidents right. of far-right terrorism right. have just dramatically increased. Um, so while one trend is going down, the other trend is going up exponentially. Well, look, Oklahoma City was the deadliest uh, terrorist attack in American history when it happened. There was 186 people in 1995. So, I mean, you know, there's been right-wing extremism in this country. It's never completely gone away. I think after the Oklahoma City, it, you know, the militia movements that were in Michigan and other places, they were, you know, suddenly people weren't joining them and, you know, there was a lot of A, law enforcement activity, B, they lost their kind of, kind of any kind of credibility they had as a result of this attack. So, you know, these things go in waves and I, you know, it's not, you know, and I, I, I would add to you this, your black nationalist uh, mm-hmm. terrorists have killed eight people in the last two years. They're not organized, they're not part of a group, but they're, they're influenced by this ideology. Um, so it's, you know, sadly, not entirely surprising, uh, given the history of the United States and political violence and access to weaponry and all that other stuff. And it's a big country uh, that we're seeing this. I mean, is there a disconnect or is there a problem with identifying? We talked about definitions of terrorism before. This 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 report actually lists the Las Vegas shooting as a domestic terrorism event. While we were talking before we started, that you don't see it that way. And then Charlottesville. Right, someone with political motivation runs down a woman, and there was a debate for weeks, and it's still going on right. in some court about do we call this terrorism or not? This report does; other people don't. Do we need to kind of have that conversation in the United States about how we define certain things as terrorism versus others? So the federal law enforcement community would say the they have all the tools they need to focus on right wing terrorism and extremism and uh, just the recognition as I said that the strategy focuses now it uses the word militia it uses sovereign citizens so the recognition that again the the state troopers across the country they're not worried about jihadist terrorists they're just not they're more worried about stumbling accidentally on a a sovereign citizen uh, you know in a traffic stop a routine traffic stop so law enforcement will say they have the tools and nor do they want to have all the tools that the intelligence community has necessarily because they're cognizant of our first amendment rights there's constitutional issues so the law enforcement community themselves and i can't speak for them but from from my uh 
my observation, they're relatively pleased with, with the tools that they have and, and the way we characterize uh, the threats and uh, how the laws provide tools. I mean, isn't there a dramatic difference in the legal classification of terrorism? If you're arrested for something that is not defined as terrorism versus arrested for plotting a terrorist attack? There's, well, is I there mean, a deterrent um, effect? Yeah, Chris mentioned the First Amendment. I mean, there's a problem. It, I, it is not a crime for me to be a neo-Nazi in this country. It is a crime to be a neo-Nazi and then do something violent. It is a crime for me to self-identify as part of ISIS and volunteer my services and blah, 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 because ISIS is a designated foreign terrorist organization. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan is not a designated terrorist organization by the State Department. So from a legal perspective, often, if there is a terrorist attack in the United States, there really is a domestic terrorist attack. There isn't necessarily a statutory way to try somebody for terrorism in that case. I mean, it could be a hate crime, could be just, and also prosecutors just want to get a case that is going to doesn't have any doesn't have any complications. So they'll just first degree murder is a right. <laughs> rather than like right. Um, so, but I mean, you're raising a very interesting point, Vince, which is you know is could could you set up a domestic terrorism kind of uh, statutory kind of um, you'd have to kind of you'd have to think about it very carefully because of the First Amendment problem uh, is is pretty big. But the First Amendment problem should be just as big about being joining ISIS or or having saying you support ISIS. I I hope I don't offend any of the listeners when I say perhaps being a neo-Nazi or being in the Klan should be equated with but I, I tell you, I tell you, this is where the First Amendment thing, because it's really not. Let's get outside the question of right wing, or, or it, it's really about domestic or international, right? Okay, uh, and that's what it boils down to. Because these foreign terrorist organizations, it is a crime to materially support them, which could include money. It could include my own services, just providing them by going to join them. It is not a crime, and never will be a crime, to go to, as a neo-Nazi to a rally, and and uh, right? right, it would be a, it would be a, it would be a prosecuted crime to, to have an ISIS rally in Washington D.C., to which people came and said, "I'm going to donate money and I'm going to donate my time." That that is a crime, and that's the that's kind of the main issue. As I, as I, I'm not a lawyer, but that, as I understand it, but because a lot, you know, you're asking what a lot of people like, you know, Charlottesville. I mean, clearly, by any obvious, you know, it was clearly an act of terrorism. He killed a woman for political reasons, and uh, she was an innocent bystander. Um, and I don't know the case well enough to know what he was charged under, but I'm sure it's probably just, you know. State statute, states, likely. Yeah. yeah. Or a federal statue for. Yeah, I think it was a state murder. It's still a homicide. That's it's not right. considered. That's right. It's, it's not a homicide. Yeah. That's and right. And so, you know, like, when I, it just, it just for prosecutors, they're not going to, like, try and complicate their issue with these. Because you can tell just from this discussion, these are not, these are, you know, a lot of people complain that um, Major uh, Nadal Hassan wasn't, there wasn't a terrorism charge against him. Well, he was tried in the court of military, you know, military justice. There isn't a terrorism thing. If he had, like, produced a terrorism defense, that he, if he'd said, yeah, this was an act of terrorism, or if the prosecutors had said that, is attacking soldiers at a base who are off-duty terrorism right. and gets into some very complicated things. So the prosecutor just said, we're going to try him for murder. He, By the way, he admitted it all. Right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, the Tsarnaev yeah. surviving brother would probably yeah. be the more apt, you know, killing civilians in the United States with as a you know, yeah. domestic 
technically a domestic terrorist attack. He didn't come from Syria or anything. Yeah. The hypothetical or the thought, you know, the thought experiment would be if you had a right-wing organization overseas that inspires somebody to conduct terrorism here in the United right. States, a right-wing, then we have a framework for that in the strategy. So that means the theory is the interagency now is looking, that those chartered with that the mandate to look for those those ties have to do it to identify is there a right-wing movement overseas that will try to inspire Americans or South Americans to operate against their their countries well like someone there was a copycat that with Anders Breivik or in, right. in Norway exactly. that would have been an, an interesting exactly yeah. exactly well I there, there certainly have been going back to the 70s and the 80s where Americans have given material support to the IRA for instance right or yeah. Sinn Féin, so they try I, to I know that I, I don't, I'm not familiar enough with the statute, but actually, actually, I am somewhat familiar. That John Walker Lind was the first person to be charged with material support. And what was the support? It was his own services, because he went right. to go and fight with the That's Taliban. Right. Because of the executive order in 1999 from President Clinton banning support of the Taliban, that was broadly interpreted to mean that Lind was supporting the Taliban in a material way. So back in the day when people were raising money for the IRA, I don't think that was a crime. Right. I mean, uh, it should, yeah. of course it should be. Um, Some of them are members of Congress, right? <laughs> well, I, well, we're not going to mention that. <laughs> you can look it up. Uh, so let me let me wrap this up by asking each of you: um, Do you see this as a? I know your answer, Chris, but if you can be kind of parse a little bit, do you see this as an adequate framework for moving forward? Do you think that this solves some of the key issues that we have been facing from 2011 and before? Or if it doesn't solve things, does it provide us with the framework to build upon it? Yeah, I mean, you know the answer to the question, but I think it's worth reinforcing. I mean, I braced myself for the October 4 release because I wanted to see an excellent strategy for the nation and for our foreign partners because this is for multiple audiences. It's also for our foreign partners as well as for terrorists, so they're on notice. And I was very pleased with the strategy because it really demonstrates the thinking that's gone on uh, since 9-11 and before. Guys like Richard Clark, we can't forget, that were, you know, uh, farsighted in their... Uh, their understanding of the threats. So that said, I think this is an excellent framework to do very cogent implementation plans. And I give the current team that's in place a lot of credit for getting this across the finish line, because this is what the interagencies wanted. They wanted a framework and a blueprint, and now they start working very hard. And it'll, it'll happen beneath the radar. It'll be transparent. There's not controversies associated with, with this uh, uh, with this strategy, as far as I know, it's just cogent. It's uh, it's very pragmatic, and I I'm very appreciative of it as a student of counterterrorism as well as a practitioner. I, I think Chris said it very well. I mean, um, well, I, I I read this the strategy, and um, we we've talked about the continuity, and there's um, a lot of continuity. Of person, I mean, I think one of the strengths of the United States. Mike Leiter was the head of the National Counterterrorism Center for George W. Bush. He was then the head of the National Counterterrorism for for President Obama. Uh, Nick Rasmussen was the head of the National Counterterrorism for Obama, and then he became the head of the National Counterterrorism Center for uh, President Trump. And many of the people that were on Chris's team worked in both administrations. So uh, I would say, you know, there's a 
Yeah, there's a lot of professional expertise uh, in this subject on both sides of the of the aisle, and also there's a lot of uh, you know career civil servants right. who just serve the administration that is, that, and and there's a lot of agreement about how to deal with this problem based on some of the learning that Chris has alluded to, um, and so that I think this strategy. I mean, it was, it was uncontroversial as you said because it's very of, apolitical too. I mean, right. Right. It's apolitical. It's right. apolitical. Yeah. It's like this is how you manage this issue. So if you're looking to read the National Counterterrorism Strategy, you can find it from the White House website, whitehouse.gov. If you're interested in looking at some of the statistics from the Global Terrorism Index, you can look at the START website that's uh, from the University of Maryland. Um, Peter Bergen, Chris Costa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you, Vince. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week.